This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two spectacular people, Nick White. Hey. And Kara Shamborski. Hey. Kara, thank you so much for coming back. I think you're going to be on the show three weeks in a row, <laughs> including next week. You all get to hear my beautiful voice for almost a whole month solid. You're welcome. Yeah, you guys, you know, you're you're in for a treat, especially because next week's episode, we recorded in advance and... It is a fun one. It's about one of the coolest things in comic books right now. Or Star at least, Wars. Yeah, it's about Star Wars. It's about, a speci- <laughs> it's about a particular series in Star Wars. So look forward to that. But we're here to talk about some things. We're here to talk about comic books. So let me ask a question I ask. Oh, you know what? Actually, I have one other thing to announce. This is kind of a big deal. Bigger than the Star Wars minisode we're doing next week. I'm sorry. Impossible. We are launching a Patreon. This is the I Read Comic Books Patreon it is launching this week, so as of listening to this episode, you can go to ircbpodcast.com slash Patreon, and you can sign up for a whole bunch of stuff. I've got, we wrote down some crazy tiers and some crazy things we want to offer to everybody. We're really excited to launch this. This is something I've been like ruminating on for like a year and a half, and I'm just finally like, we got to do it. I think we talked about it in the Q&A episode. It's happening. We're actually going to do it, so... Head over to ircbpodcast.com slash Patreon, and we're just going to keep plugging that for forever. Every five minutes, I'm going to keep bringing it up. So <laughs> let's actually get into the show, though. Let's talk about comic books. Let me ask the question I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kara. So I am attempting to pitch a comic book club at the school that I currently work at. Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> So uh, the other day was the extracurricular fair where everyone who was presenting a club had to present their clubs. And I had like no materials because my materials are contingent on people signing up for the club and giving me funding for the said materials. It's okay. a real so, chicken in the egg situation there, huh? Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah. I, so I was like, what do I do? So I made a poster that said comics club, but I made the word comics like bubble letters and each letter, like the filling of it is inspired by different like iconic comic book characters so i was very Mm -hmm. proud of it because i didn't plan it in advance because i just like started cover coloring in the sea with like an orange marker and then i was like i bet if i add stripes to this it'll look like garfield and then it just kind of mushroomed from there and i got like the other c turned into captain america shield and the m turned into like a uh, like a spidey logo and i was very proud of it so I had a lot of like little kids come over who are too young for my club because I want some of the older kids so I can actually get them like building a narrative visually. But the right. little guys who would come over, I'd just be like, oh, get out. You're no. too young. <laughs> Where Nicholas. are your siblings? <laughs> Nick, do you have this any is... money? <laughs> no, for no, so for the little guys I'd be like, "Oh, who's your favorite superhero?" and it was just so cute because like some of the kids were like a little shy and some of them like looked shy but the second you asked them who their favorite superhero was their face just like lit up and they would be like spider-man and you're like yes go on (laughs) oh my goodness that's so adorable (laughs) it was really cute i was dying because some of them were like four years old and i was just Mm -hmm. like oh hello who's your favorite superhero and one of them would just be like my dad and i was like stop it stop it i can't deal <laughs> i can't cry right now i'm trying to be professional i'm wearing a can your dad lift a car <laughs> try well, again well what i did was i asked this kid i was like oh and what are some of your dad's superpowers good put and him on the spot 
no. And the kid was like, strength. And I was like, I can't. And his dad was right there. So his dad looked like he was about to start crying. And I was like, this is oh a mess. We're all too emotional here. This kid has no idea what he's doing. Anyway. Um, That's so great. It was really adorable. Comics are great people. Oh, and like some of the some of the dads were like coming over and talking to me about the comics that they read when they were kids. Like one of the dads walked over and he was just like, man, I used to read Tintin all the time. And I was like, sir, do you have a child in fourth through seventh grade? Because I have the club for them then. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, in terms of comics, I actually read this week. Uh, I dove into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles again and read Ooh. their micro series volume one, which is a collection of four, I guess, single issues that were each about like a different story related to each turtle. And I was a little thrown because it seems like these micro series issues are offshoots of a greater turtle universe that IDW has been constructing. Yeah, they are. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So they were referencing some things that I wasn't mm-hmm. quite firm on. And like, I was able to like catch on pretty quickly, but like one of them, the Leonardo story was like very clearly a spinoff or addition to a greater plot that had been going on where like master splinter was kidnapped and Leo was like flashing back to this, like, Apparently, in a past life, he and his brothers were actually Splinter's biological sons, and they were all human, and they had a mom, and she got murdered in front of them. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Kara, you need to read the series. It's so good. (laughs) I'll send you the roadmap. It's a very complicated reading order. (laughs) Okay, yes, send me that roadmap, but also, what the hell? (laughs) Like, what is happening? It's so good. It's Nick, I'm expecting lighthearted turtle fun, and it's like, my mother was murdered. I was like, is this fucking Batman? Like, what is this? (laughs) It's really sad. (laughs) But the other thing that messed me up was um, there is, uh, like, the the Raphael story is, like, he and Casey Jones are patrolling in Casey's neck of the woods or city, and they run across this girl, but she's an Arctic fox, and she's running away. And I was like, wait a while. Yeah, and so he, like, within a few panels of meeting her, Raph's like, okay, well, I'll take you home because I think my dad and brothers will be able to help you out, even though I'm, like, grumpy with them because I'm always grumpy with them. And then he, like, blindfolds her and hoists her over his shoulder and starts, like, running off into the night. And, like, like, a few panels later, it turns out that, like, the situation is not what he thought it was. But, like, just from that moment... I'm like, Raph, I know you're not a complete asshole, but why is your first instinct to this strange girl who has been running from people who have been actively pursuing her? I'm going to blindfold you and take you to an undisclosed location. If I'm that girl, I'm freaking out. So I hope that his realization a few panels later is him being like, oh, she gave into that a little too easily. Hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then I remember like, like these these turtles are good turtles these are good boys but they don't actually have a lot of interaction with people beyond april and casey so like i understand if they're not totally socially like fluent (laughs) as far as they know the only people that exist that aren't casey and april are shredder and so like (laughs) everyone is evil to them (laughs) i'm just like boys and then like oh man i really liked the michelangelo story because he accidentally becomes involved in a heist at essentially the like a halloween version of the met gala and oh right yeah 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 
and he like rolls in because he's just like, I'm totally in costume. And I'm like, oh, you precious baby. And I, I ended up really liking this because of the way he handled the situation and also because um, there was a girl who was part of the heist and like dressed in kind of like a Catwoman vibe. And towards the end of the story, she reveals that her name is Kara. And I was like, what's up, girl? So, <laughs> um, And the, yeah, and like the Donnie story was really cute because it was about him like connecting with a fellow nerd in like a high stakes situation. And I was just like, oh, Donnie, yes. So anyway, I have a lot of feelings about the turtles and I, this micro series satisfied them. That's good. I mean, I've I've always wanted to try. I know Nick, you've been diving deep into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stuff. I've been putting it off. I have the first couple of volumes. I just need to sit down and actually read them. I'm currently in the middle of a Transformers binge, and I can only do one major license <laughs> property at a time. Oh, Mike, so. I have I have. I'm looking at a tote bag full of Transformers comics right now, and I was like, do I want to really dive into this for this week's show? No, let's do a really easily digestible TMNT. Yeah, dive. <laughs> good thinking. Good good thought. <laughs> Oh man, Nick, how have you been? How have comic books been for you? Yeah, things things have been good. Uh, it's been raining a lot over here, um, which which is totally fine. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, for the last two to three months, Michigan has pretty much been on fire, more or less. It's just been I mean, crazy, crazy drought conditions. So you really shouldn't say that with Kara on the line. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's I in mean, California. Yeah, yeah, dude. We, come on, we aren't literally on fire. This is think as of close your audience. We are literally to, on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, just just know that it's 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 bad as far as Michigan goes for sure, um, but I have been getting some reading done. Uh, I did recently read uh, Shadow Man number three, which had some great artwork from Adam Polina, uh, and I also read um, Wilds the Wildstorm number fifteen, which that book continues to be amazing, really really great. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Uh, but the book I want to talk about is the Quantum Age number one. Mm-hmm. This is written by Jeff Lemire. Uh, for those not aware, he is currently writing 80% of the current comic books market. I think <laughs> Charles Soule got a little bit tired, and Jeff was like, that's all right, you take a break, you know, scale it back to maybe only 20 books, and I'll I'll, I'll take the lion's share. And Charles mm-hmm. was like, oh, thank God. Um, so it's, it's Jeff, and it's uh, with Wilfredo Torres on art, Dave Stewart on colors, Nate Picos on letters. For those unaware, The Quantum Age is not, I don't know if I'd say it's a follow-up, I guess I'd call it a spin-off of Black Hammer. Uh, this is the third follow-up to Black Hammer, following Dr., sorry, Sherlock Frankenstein, Dr. Star in the Kingdom of Lost Tomorrows, and I don't know if you want to call Age of I I classify Age of Doom as more or less just Black Hammer continued. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I it's the third. Um, the difference with this spinoff is that it takes place roughly about a thousand years in the future, and oh, yeah, yeah, and and Torres has worked with Jeff Lemire before. Yeah, uh, Lemire is kind of like Quentin Tarantino in the way that like if you're if you're an actor you know tarantino likes you pretty much get bounced into all of his stuff jj abrams is sort of the same way and with jeff lemire if you're an artist he really likes working with you tend to find even more work and so torres worked with him on moon knight he was one of like the four rotational artists on moon knight alongside yeah. uh francovia and um smallwood yeah. yeah yeah and so now he's working with him on this the art for this is definitely going to be polarizing. I think for people that perhaps had an issue with like Dr. Star being 
a little out there for them. I thoroughly enjoyed Max Fiumara's artwork, but I know not everybody did. Um, Torres is a bit like David Rubin's work on Sherlock Frankenstein. It's but it feels looser and more minimalist, but also you know quite light, bright, and animated. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we have in this series we basically have another issue where a bunch of heroes disband and disappear uh 25 years ago and you have this martian who's trying to reunite them whose name is uh trev trevs which yes uh does sound a lot like another martian in the dc universe yeah yeah uh, known as john johns um but the problem is that martians even a thousand years in the future are still not really welcomed on earth uh, especially after 20 to 25 years back, there was a Martian invasion that you know took out New York City or nearly took out New York City, and they had to result to devastating measures to, to fight it back. And so what's interesting is it does seem a lot like um, the original Black Hammer. We have uh, this group of heroes. They used to work together as a team, and... That was maybe 25, 30 years ago. They disbanded. We're not really sure why. And now we have a young individual attempting to reconnect the dots and bring them all back together again. Which, yeah, that sounds exactly like Black Hammer. So I guess history repeats itself. Um, I think from interviews I've read... Yeah. (laughs) From interviews I've read, like, Lemire was obviously trying to draw all sorts of connections. And I think the whole idea that time is cyclical and everything is another one, even though depending upon what resources you're into, time is actually a, a, a flat circle. That's what I've learned. Um, yeah. That, well, I mean, yeah. the question is, have you read uh, the, Age of, the latest issue of Age of Doom? Um, is that three? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, this issue sounds like it ties directly into some of the revelations that are coming out of that issue. And yeah. the fact that this issue, the Quantum Age number one, came out before that kind of makes you feel like Lemire was trying to lay some a little bit of foreshadowing in another comic book um yeah which will be really interesting to see how it all plays out but i mean i haven't read this yet so i'm i'm skeptical to see how that all comes together yeah the the interplay is happening in very subtle and and uh unexpected ways obviously it's a book a thousand years in the future you can only do so much with that sure but it certainly feels a lot like lemire is using this book to sort of um, I guess create a love letter to the Legion of Superheroes, if you will, because there's definitely a lot of that stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a Greenland. There's basically a character in this book that is definitely a John Stewart analog for sure. And we've talked about this before. Like oh, so many of the 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 Black Hammer characters are, you know, you can you can say, oh, it's definitely this DC character. Or this guy's definitely Martian Manhunter. So there's more of that sort of fun going on. Or the guy who you and I were like, this is definitely the dreaming or what is it the eternals the endless what do they yeah, call yeah, those yeah. guys the characters I, the, from the, the new gods no like dream and death no from gaiman no, oh from yeah. the sandman series yeah. i don't know what those guys are called the endless i, I, I think, think they're, they're the endless, endless. Yeah, yeah okay anyway. okay yeah yeah it's it's a lot of fun again i do want to point out the art is a bit polarizing it's kind of loose the line work is a little interesting uh, but if you enjoyed all of the other stuff so far, you're probably going to be okay with this. It's not going to be too like out of left field for you, for sure. Gotcha. 
Yeah, I mean this this run like all of what Lemire is doing over at Dark Horse with these these books and these mini series that all tie together feels a lot like how they're managing the Alien series, right? Like and I only know this from how Nick has explained it to me, where there's like a Predator, an Alien, an Alien versus Predator, a Prometheus book, and maybe they'll throw like a one shot or a handful of books around those. Um, I really like that. I think it. It, it forces you to buy a lot of books, but it also it like keeps. It, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a choice, on Mike. Hand, I should say it is. It's on it's one not. hand, you can get the main story just by reading the one book, and it, and honestly, you don't need the rest. But if you want a more cohesive story and you want like a full quote unquote universe of things, you can get all of that. And I, I really like that they give you that option. It's not a demand. It's not like a crossover event where it feels like you have to read all of the colliding issues in order to get the whole story, and it, it's super working out. Uh, right. I'm I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's such a super tough line to walk between creating content that's quality and engaging mm-hmm. um and interesting and has value but also isn't being created in a way that deprives people that aren't reading the book. So it's right. it's so tough to do and I think he's he's got it completely down and I'm sure Dark Horse is like, "Oh, thank fucking god, like keep Keep churning out like how many more friends do you have, Jeff Lemire? Like how many more artists can you call upon? Because it's yeah. like, look, we just lost Buffy. Okay, we're probably gonna have Alien yanked away from us by by Disney due to the Fox merger. Mm-hmm. We just lost uh, Firefly to Boom. Um, Conan's going over to Marvel. Conan's going over to Marvel. Like, how many more Black Hammer ideas do you have? Because we're gonna we're gonna fucking ring you dry, buddy. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or they're going to start kicking up a bunch more Hellboy books. But speculation aside, I, this sounds interesting. I'm going to cut you off, Nick, because I feel like this conversation could go on for forever. Because I need to talk yeah. about what I read. Just and read the Black very... Hammer books, period. Yes, go yes ahead. Mike. What did you read? I'm, I'm super excited about this. So Nick pointed out to me the other night that there was this comicsology sale for this publisher called Dover. <laughs> and I never heard of them before. And I think my I was... message was, what the fuck is Dover? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so I, I clicked on, I checked it out, and I scrolled through it. And I was like, "Oh, there's like a little a, a little Nemo book," and I was like, "Oh, that looks interesting." And I scrolled all the way to the bottom. There's only a handful of books. I saw the cover for this book called "The Last of the Dragons," and I clicked into it and saw some of the preview art, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And the sale price is reasonable enough, so I bought it, and I read it in a sitting, and it's like eighty some pages. Um, it's actually a really short comic with a lot of really interesting back matter. So if you're the type of person that wants to really get into how a comic was made, specifically a comic that was made in the 80s, um, which is a totally different process than how comics are made nowadays, I highly recommend this book because it's on sale and it's, it's really it's really beautiful. It's by far one of the most beautiful books that I've ever seen that isn't like a modern comic, right? So if you, I, don't, I, I haven't read a lot of like quote-unquote old comics, but this book from beginning to end in the story is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's Like I said, it's called Last of the Dragons. This is by Carl Potts, who wrote and penciled the book, with script by Dennis O'Neill, inks by Terry Austin, and colors by the Marie Dennis Severin. O'Neill? The, the Dennis Denny. O'Neill. Denny. Yeah. The All Terry right. Austin. All right. The Marie Severin. Like, these are huge names if you're like a comic book history buff. These are people that were pretty big into comics in the 70s and 80s. And specifically Marie Severin, who's won a million and one awards for her color work, her pencils, her inks, everything. She is an triple a superstar and she colored this book which is half the reason it is so gorgeous like not to mention carl potts's pencils who are that are just fantastic and terry austin's inks on top of those pencils like there's some progress work in the back of this book that shows like a pencil to ink to color and it 
astounds me, like the dramatic increase in quality that goes from pencils to inks to colors. And I know that we see this nowadays, and people are still doing this work, and I'm not trying to say that their work is as bad or anything like that. But what I, this book is unbelievably gorgeous, and I... It was such a cool, simple idea, um, and like an idea, and playing off the idea of samurai and ninjas, and what if dragons were a real thing? And the story opens on. <laughs> I think you just named all of like the the buzzwords for an eight year old, basically. Well, yeah, and it's 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 cool because I mean, Carl Potts is his is, is me, half like, Japanese, yeah, or <laughs> yeah. Carl Potts is, is half Japanese, and he said that he got really into the history of, like, just his people, of, of the culture of Japan. And so he started working on this book, and, like, when he was also working at Marvel and working at Epic Comics, he was working just on his free time in his, like, Saturdays and Sundays, he was working on this book. And he was just writing ideas, and he didn't write a proper script, which is why he talked to Dennis O'Neill, um, who said that he would write the book. And then Terry Austin came in, and he talked to Marie Severin because he was working with her in the bullpen. And all basically through just having a long-standing work at Marvel and Epic and a couple of other companies, he was managed. He was able to tap all of these people to make this book happen. And so they published it as eight-page issues inside of the Epic magazine, which I guess was something that came out in the 80s. Hmm. And it's, it's gorgeous. I cannot express how beautiful this comic is. The story is simple. The story kind of falls to some tropes that were very prevalent in the 80s. Um, I think... Cocaine. Yeah, yeah, it's all cocaine. No, I think I mean the the story is about a samurai and a ninja who come to who are at odds trying to save these dragons from a corrupted group of monks who raised the dragons. And it sounds uh-huh. really cool. Yep. Um the they they do use the the trope of uh you know, a character a, a woman dies in order to drive the plot further. Um, uh, I, oh, I thought you were going to no, say no, no. the corrupted monks raised dragons trope, which is just so no, so no. fucking so, overused. I'm so sick of it. So the Not all monks. This, hashtag this 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 woman dies as to drive the narrative, but it's actually like a, it's a really weird because I I was kind of annoyed by it, but the the like she chose to kill herself in a way, and it was a misunderstood death that caused this ninja to say I have to kill this samurai because he thought the samurai had killed this woman. Um, and it's it's a really I don't know it's really interesting. They travel across the the ocean to bring these dragons to America. It's it's all over the place, and it like the it's definitely apparent that Karl Potts wanted to draw a lot of Japan. He wanted to draw a lot of Northwestern America. Like he had, a, he has a deep love for some of these nature scenes of of places that you probably wouldn't have wouldn't have seen the nature of nowadays because like if it's you know in the 18th century. Um, I don't know. I I was blown away by this book. Like the the story isn't necessarily great, but um because it's very simple. But I think that the the art itself sells this book in such a way. I was just jaw dropping. Like every page when they did big splashes or two page like one two page spread or two two page spreads, I just couldn't believe how gorgeous it was. So if you get a chance, maybe check this book out. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the story may throw you off a little bit, but it, I honestly think that the art makes up for it. Um, for it just being simple. So yeah, that's what I read. Um, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to like completely kill it for you, Karen. I promise. Like the art is very beautiful. I can maybe let you borrow my copy or something. It was such a good pitch, and then all of a sudden, it was like ah, oh, the one thing that I'm just so so annoyed by. Yeah, yeah, totally okay. understandable. I do like the idea of beautiful art, though. Yeah, I mean, I I I'll find some screenshots. I mean, I post post one or two of them in the show notes for people to look at. Thank um, you. But yeah, let's uh let's move on. Let's talk about what we're excited for this upcoming week. Comic books are dropping on August 29th, two thousand eighteen. 
What are you both excited for this week? Let's start with you, Nick. Well, we got to fit a Valiant book in here somewhere, so here Somehow. we go. Uh, <laughs> if it's not here, if it's not Jeff Lemire, it's got to be Matt Kent for you, if right? It's, <laughs> there's there's the other governing rule. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, here's the other man writing all of the comic books out there. So this is Harbinger Wars two number four. It's uh, written by Matt Kent. It's drawn by Tomas Giorello and Renato Guedes with colors by Diego Rodriguez. And I think Rodriguez only colors Giorello's work because Renato Guedes uses a painting style, so he's obviously doing his own color work. So Gotcha. Uh, intricacies aside, this is the second-to-last issue for Harbinger Wars uh, number two, with Harbinger Wars 2 Aftermath number one. These names just keep getting more ridiculous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, being the final one next month. Um, I read the second and third issues in this series just a day or two ago, and I gotta admit, these are some of the fastest reads of any Matt Kent books I've ever read, which is not a bad thing, but for anyone who's ever read Matt Kent books, you <laughs> you usually know that it's time to sit down, get some noise-canceling headphones, set aside a block of like 45 minutes, and get ready to really pay attention to things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyone who's read like Department H especially or mind management uh Gosh, knows mind management. that kent stuff tends to get a little deep also uh major appreciation uh to matt kent throwing in a line where ninjack says something like i guess this guy didn't have the appropriate level of mind management so i loved that uh, uh he did the that thing. aside <laughs> um so for those unaware this is valiant's big summer blockbuster event of this um summer obviously and it does ring a little true uh when compared to civil war we're going to force everybody to line up get dragged into something they're going to be forced to take sides on an issue and then everyone's going to punch everyone else in the face until they decide that it really wasn't worth fighting over and or someone else is pulling the strings comic books (laughs) comic books that being said I will say what has really impressed me with this is that frequently when you have all of the characters in a universe being forced to pick one side or another on some issue, uh, sometimes there's some real creative, I guess, ideological shoehorning going on in terms of, oh, this guy believes that, and you're kind of like, really? Because, like, this guy seems a little too nuanced to be taking a side on this black or white issue or I don't really know how you reach a point where so-and-so believes this you know what I mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and within the second and third issues I've found that like there are characters that are starting to change their mind on things and aren't really um, maybe initially uh, believing what we thought they believed there's one character in particular I don't want to spoil anything but there's one that I had a real problem with where I was like you should not be siding this way in this book and he's changing his mind which I guess is something you can do um, I, uh, you know. uh, Peter Parker let's let's talk about Civil War 1 Peter Parker switched oh. sides halfway through okay did he? Well, I mean, yeah. he's a teenager. He's he's not going to be able to make up his mind. His he's in his mid-20s. Like 30s or something? Yeah, he's like in his 20s or 30s. Like, come on, okay. Nick. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't even I don't even pay attention to Spider-Man. <laughs> 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 um, that aside, what else? I, I, I will say I don't really know if we technically needed two separate artists. Um each draws one of the two main plot lines going on, one largely following Harbinger characters and one largely following, um, like, Exo, Manowar, and, and mm-hmm. Bloodshot. 
and I don't really think we needed um, Guedes doing this book. Honestly, I think Girella would have been fine. Um, it does offer a nice sort of easy cue to signal when you're switching from one artist to the other. I'm sorry, from switching from one plot line to the other. But I think Girella honestly could have handled this book. Um, Girello is obviously more of an action-oriented um, artist, I would say. But both plot lines are so action-heavy that uh, I don't, I, I don't know why they did it. Like Girello has had this, no problem doing month-to-month books up to this point. So I just. Could this be because of the whole, there was originally supposed to be a side-by-side book running, and then they ended up just making the one book after the DMG, like, takeover that essentially caused that, what's his name, Walt Simonson to walk out? Oh, not walk out, but he left the company? Eric Hessier was Or Eric Hessier, sorry. I don't know, Walt Simonson. and everything. Um, That's like the Thor I don't know what I'm talking about. It's possible that this has something to do with that? I don't know. Like I said, like... I'm sure part of it was just to help free up Giarello, but he usually doesn't have problems doing monthly book deadlines. So, gotcha. Yeah. Other than that, I, I can't wait to see where this goes. I think there are going to be some real severe repercussions following this event that are we're probably going to see in such books as Livewire and the new Bloodshot book that we're getting in the upcoming months. I'm so, I'm so excited for that Livewire book. Oh my god, the new Livewire book. Uh, what is that? Uh, is that Vita Ayala and... Yeah. Um, uh, Raul Allen and Patricia Martin on art. Oh man! Yeah, that's gonna cannot be... wait for that book so much. <laughs> Me too. What about you, Kara? What have you? Uh, what's your pick? Beyonders number one from Aftershock. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Paul Jenkins, Wesley St. Clair, and Marshall Dillon are the creative team, and um, so I actually read instead of just like the straight up solicit a more in depth article about this that was like the full pitch and a like small interview with the creators and mm-hmm. after reading that article i'm like give me this book now because the <laughs> the premise is the library of alexandria was burned down to suppress information and the beyonders is a secret society that protects the remnants of the library of alexandria to protect it from further harm and the book the beyonders is like like a treasure hunty kind of vibe. Like I'm getting a national treasure slash Indiana Jones vibe, but there's a real life treasure slash set Gavender hunt in the pages of the book that readers can actually like follow along and try to solve the clues. And the creative team slash aftershock are offering up actual real prizes for people who like solve the mysteries in the pages. What? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so after reading that, I was like, how is nobody like, how isn't everyone talking about this book? This looks so rad. So like they had me on the whole like library of Alexandria burned down for a sinister reason hook, because sure. that's one of the greatest losses that this world has ever sustained mm-hmm. in terms of in- intellectual property. But some of us <laughs> don't feel that strongly about libraries. But I mean, I guess for some people, that's Nick. <laughs> You, sir, are not a Ravenclaw. Look, they didn't (laughs) let me have a card either, okay? So, (laughs) the Library of Alexandria. (laughs) Anyway, so. They were like, we heard about those $35 fines. Oh, my God. So, continue. Thank you. So, like, the Library of Alexandria hook was good enough for me, but then they were like, a treasure hunt through our pages. And I was like, give me this book immediately. Thank you. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I just looked up the cover for that. That is a spectacular looking cover i might have to grab this number one like right from the shop this looks really cool mm-hmm. 
And the treasure hunt thing just sounds cool. Yeah, the treasure hunt thing sounds cool too. And I'm just like, you know what? This this looks like a, a book with potential. Bring it on. Definitely. Well, for me this week, I am excited for the book that is the most obvious pick in the world, X-Men Grand Design Second Genesis number two, because <laughs> how was I not going to pick this book? So right now we're in the middle of going through some of the 80s. We got through the Phoenix Force. We got through some of the wild and crazy Wolverine moments in the 80s and 70s and so on. And I, we're, we're moving forward. I think Gambit is in this upcoming volume or issue. So Didn't I'm two very already excited. Come out? Wait, no? Mike. Mike, what is this Grand Design thing? Oh, yeah. So if you're not familiar with X-Men Grand Design, X-Men Grand Design is Ed Piscor, the creator of Hip Hop Family Tree, um, and many other things, WYSIWYG, Wizzy Wizzy which is another fantastic book of his. Um, he's done a couple of other books, but he Ed Piscor does a really good job with autobiographical stuff, specifically taking very, very dense, complex stories, specifically in the real world, and turning mm -hmm. them into digestible, understandable comic books that are gorgeous. Um, and they have a very strong documentary feel. So he's done that with Hip Hop Family Tree, he's done that with other things, and he was commissioned by Marvel, or he worked with Marvel to put together this six-issue series in batches of two, um, two issues at a time, called X-Men Grand Design, where he retells the history of the X-Men from their inception up through, I, th I don't know where the end is going to be, but I'm guessing probably mid-2000s, probably with Death of X or something like that. Uh, so it's gonna it's really interesting. So right now we're in the middle two issues of the series. And so this is issue four of six, essentially, but it's called X-Men Grand Design Second Genesis. And we're we're getting the history of the the characters that people probably know the most about. We're talking about um Jean Grey. We're getting like the main the main five, I guess, Beast, Angel, um, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Iceman. But we see them go away. We see the the introduction of characters like Colossus, Storm, um, Wolverine, uh, Nightcrawler, and a bunch of other people. And you know we're we're meeting David Hallard, Legion, and we're seeing the 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 beginnings of Apocalypse, which I think is what this issue is going to cover a little bit. So it's it's the it's we're moving forward in in the history of the X Men, and this next issue I'm very very excited for because come on. It's so gorgeous. It's so such a cool idea to take a, the this documentary style of like uh, almost like biographical comic and apply it to a fictional world. So they so Marvel gets to, to tell Ed Piscor, here's all the information you need to include. Do it in your way. And from my understanding, he has pretty strong control over this. I think his agreement was, I get to tell it my way. There's going to be no ads. We're printing on this kind of paper. It's going to be this many pages. I'm going to include all of this information in the back for references in case people want to look it up. It is a super solid book. I think the only ads you get are on the inside cover and on the inside of the back cover. But otherwise, the outside is there's no ads. The inside of the book has no ads. And it's printed on that newspaper stock, that kind of thicker, that has like an actual feeling. It's not glossy paper. And it's beautiful, absolutely Good beautiful. Good the glossy paper. I mean, yeah, and it's glossy paper would not do his work any service. And I like, I'm really excited for this to get collected. This book is the greatest thing ever. I'm, I don't know anything more about what what the direction is, and I don't care to know because I'm just gonna pick this book up and devour it. Well, this sounds like right up my alley, honestly, because a lot of these larger team books can be kind of impenetrable and I think we've spoken before about how X-Men is kind of an intimidating thing to get into because Definitely. it's basically like well you really should start at the beginning and read the thousands of issues that have been come <laughs> and, but God. so but this Kill seems me. but this, <laughs> this seems like a really easy way to get a manageable viewpoint 
on, like you said, these like huge important moments in the history of the X-Men. And I, for Mm -hmm. one, am like, my thing is I love, um, character driven stories. Like I, I do not care if the plot is full of holes, if I feel an emotional connection to the characters. So this seems like a way where I, as a comic reader could read this and then feel like I had a knowledge of the X-Men, even if, I didn't read the actual events and spinoffs and so forth that these events were uh, originally cast as. Yeah. And this is honestly, when this gets all collected as one big edition, it's going to be the thing that I recommend to every single person. I mean, you can get the collected edition of the first two issues in this massive oversized thing. It's called like the treasury edition. It's um, a weird it's, looking book. Yeah. It's a monster of a book. It's it is, an it's, odd size. But it, is it, it like works. those Hellboy library editions that are really yes. gorgeous? No, this is very no. weird. And the cover is made of some godforsaking material that I'm sure has chemicals in it that we should not be handling. No, Nick, it's do like you a... have opinions about book materials? <laughs> oh, God. Do no, not we, that. That's a show. That's a show. That's a Xander episode. can come on for that one. I'm sure he actually will show up for that one. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's it's good. And I care, I think if you can find this at the library, I highly recommend it. Just to get like a uh, a really solid ground base of of X-Men because I think once you read all of Grand Design when it all eventually comes out, I think if you gave that to someone, you'd be like, "All right, you're going to need 3 to 6 hours to read this because these things are dense. Like it takes me easily an hour to read a single issue of this because it's so compact with Because Mike keeps getting too excited and has to like step away <laughs> to grab like a paper bag cuz he's hyperventilating, yes. yeah. <laughs> um no, it's it's very good. I will say that. But we have to stop talking about this because I'm going to go on about this forever. So we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to talk about our Goodreads book of the month. So we'll be back in a second. For our show this week, we are talking about our Goodreads book of the month as voted on and commented on and discussed by all of the fantastic people over at our Goodreads group. If you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend you head over to goodreads.com and look for I Read Comic Books. We are the first comic book group that comes up when you search. And you can join this group, and you can nominate books, and you can vote on all of our books and comment on on them on the future. But for now, we are talking about the book that was voted on for August 2018, and that is Animosity Volume 1 by Marguerite Bennett, with art by Rafael de la Torre, Rob Schwager, and letters by Marshall Dillon. And before we start, full spoilers for Animosity Volume 1. This is Animosity Issues number 1 through 4, as well as Animosity The Rise number 1, which is by Marguerite Bennett, Wando, and letters by Marshall Dillon as well. So, let's get into it. What did you guys think of this this collected edition about animals who woke up? I guess the premise of this book is wild. Animals start to talk and start killing everybody, right? (laughs) Well, that's a... Sure, Mike. That's a, that's a kind of a superficial interpretation of it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, they don't they exactly. don't kill everybody. They just true true. They, be, they become sentient. Yeah, and which is which begs a whole lot of questions. But I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things. I, I mean, this is a really fast paced book, so I won't go so, into it. Kara, continue, please. Okay, okay. So first of all, I I really enjoy most of Marguerite Bennett's work, if only because. I feel like her writing style is similar to my writing style. Like when I am 
writing down like dreams that I've had or like any kind of fiction stuff. I tend to be like really intense and like I, I feel I feel like um Marguerite Bennett writes with this intensity and uh kind of like a there are like oh like legendary mythical undertones to a lot of her work. Mm-hmm. Um, in, including her nonfiction stuff. Like she, there was a forward at the beginning of this book where she was writing about uh, children, like being a child and the concept of uh, being a parent. And like, it, it was just such a, like a weird abstract way to write about it, but it was, um, it was like kind of poetic in a way. And I was like, Ooh, girl, you've seen my fanfiction.net. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, I, like I don't, I don't like the the content of everything that she writes, but I like appreciate the way in which she writes it. So I tend to like her work, even if I don't like her work. If that makes sense, like I had, I had a lot of issues with um, her Josie and the Pussycats book because I liked it, but realized that it was written specifically for, like me and like women like me like the audience was a specific age group of women who like a specific subset of pop culture and comic book references and I was like while reading it I was like if you are not like me or like people exactly like me like you are not getting anything out of this book because it's so dense with references Mm -hmm. and that was like kind of the end of her um she did a Angela book at marvel a few years ago and that was the same thing it was like angela queen of hell and it all kind of like seemed like it was falling apart towards the end because instead of like keeping with the the plot and like again that like underlying current of like this lyrical mysticism in her writing worked so well for angela queen of hell but then at the end it all kind of like felt like it was falling apart because she was like breaking the fourth wall all over the place and adding in all these pop culture references and i was like girl (laughs) i mean this only works for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the end of that book was kind of big middle finger, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was just like, uh, that's what seems to happen with a lot of her work. So going into uh, animosity and really knowing nothing about it except that she was writing it and knowing that it was just the first volume so I wouldn't get to see like the end like you do for some of her shorter work. I was just kind of mm-hmm. like, okay, all right, here's the buildup, but do I really want to be in for the full ride knowing where it's probably going to go based on all of her past works? (laughs) Like, okay. Is this also going to deteriorate into just like this mishmash of references that are really interesting for the people who understand them, but really off putting for the people who don't. So this is like, she's definitely a creator where you either really like her work or you are just super frustrated with her because she's talking about things that you don't know about. Interesting. That's I I guess I I haven't read enough of her work to be able to say that I think I've read, I read this and I've read this and I can't think of anything else off the top of my head so maybe I'm biased and I because I, I I kind of I really enjoyed this book, um, but there I mean it has a lot of like very f- progressive just pieces of storytelling like culturally progressive like pieces that are scattered all around that and I was like okay aftershock like this is the first aftershock book that I picked up and I I thought okay well this is like the foot the first foot that they're putting forward saying like we're not going to beat around the bush we're going to talk about progressive themes we're going to talk about a lot of stuff and I think the wake excuse me like the animosities the wake like the thing that wakes up all these animals is like 
a point in the direction of how are we living in this world. It's like an environment, a big environmental thing. But um, I, I, I've talked enough. I mean, Nick, Nick, what are your thoughts on this book? To just to just to get us started, and then we can dive into the various pieces of it. Sure. Oh boy. Well, I mean, right out of the gate, I got to say that my overall impression of Marguerite Bennett has not really been stellar. I'll just briefly okay. sum this up. Um, her first work was for DC. She did the Batman Annual Number Two. It's probably one of the worst things I've ever read. Um, honestly, okay. and she, she, and just she wasted Wes Craig's shot. artwork. And I don't like anybody wasting, you know, Wes Craig's artwork. So that's why I don't like him on Deadly Class right now. But okay. we won't get into that. Okay. Um, I quit Batgirl before she got on that. I read her one shot of Talon, didn't really enjoy it. When she finally came back around at DC for Commodity Challenge number seven, one of the worst issues of the bunch, honestly. Okay. Uh, LOL, anachronistic, out of place internet humor. I don't need it all the time. It doesn't work all the time. I don't need fourth wall breaking all the time. It. But about this, it's book, like Kara though. said, like eventually she resorts to this sense of humor that frequently breaks the tone of whatever is going on because it's this one thing that she knows how to do. And some people, I guess, have like no threshold for like LOL so random, but some of us do. Well, that's anyway. what I was saying with like you either really like her work or you're very frustrated by it because she's speaking to a very specific audience Yeah, that is, that does tend to be like very looped in on like, well, I mean, com- it's not the something where I don't media. understand these things. No, 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 the no. problem is that I do and I don't need any more of it. And that's understandable too. Like she's, she's definitely, it, it's, it's part of the, the like overarching conversation of like we're at this wonderful place with not just comics but a lot of media where you can have a a niche voice speaking to a niche audience and because we've spent so much time in pop culture like having to deal with these like broader generic like this will be moderately pleasing to the largest group of people possible and now we're shifting to where people can find like TV shows and movies and comics that speak directly to them that didn't exist before. But mm-hmm. that just means that, you know, you're never going to please everybody. So it's just like, what do you like? Ver- and like, what is good versus um, like, like, can you appreciate something for what it is while still recognizing that you are not the audience? And I felt like, like her work is a really great example of that. Like, can you appreciate her work even if you're not the targeted audience or is it like still just frustrating? And for like animosity while reading it, like right away, I was like, I recognize your tone. I recognize what you're doing here. She, she does a lot of um, like interesting angles. I feel like with her point of view on certain topics, especially with like her more indie stuff like this and insects. I'm like, this is not something I would have thought of, but now I'm mm-hmm. reading along with yeah. it. So See, I never checked out that book insects, but go ahead, Nick. 
and and yeah, I, I do want to be clear. Um, like I said, my exposure to her has been fairly limited. Um, the publishers I tend to read, again, most people know Dark Horse, Valiant, DC, uh, she has done very little work for or not a lot of work recently. And I realize that a lot of people say that her better work or her best work, or at least the majority of her work, um, has frequently been done at Marvel or Aftershock. And so, of course, I haven't had a lot of exposure to that stuff. Um, I think the concept of the book is interesting. I think it obviously brings up and unearths and upends a whole bunch of uh, societal issues, obviously, morality issues. There's a lot to work with, which of course I think is a double-edged sword because not only does this give does it give her this huge, massive, like literally infinite playground of um, implications and and ramifications, but it also puts the burden and onus on her to be answering all of those questions. And so I was finding throughout the book that I was having a lot of issues with certain things. And of course, trying to not get too upset about them because it's a question of like, is this a question you haven't answered? Is this a question you haven't thought of answering? Or is this something you're answering down the line? So I don't want to get too upset about it now because maybe you're going to deal with it later. Like a lot of these animals are talking, right? Yeah. But they don't have voice boxes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. How do you talk with... You're physically incapable. Sure, sure. I, I think for a book that is maybe based very heavily in reality, the, there is a, a, yeah. a disconnect that can happen. And that you... you you know, you, you can read a book where animals do talk, and if it's mm-hmm. a Marvel or it's a DC book or a Dark Horse book or something, you kind of just go with it because you're like, oh, it's a comic book. You know? Exactly. If you, but if you think of something like The Autumn Lands, Tooth and Claw, right? That book is all about animals talking, right? The Kurt Busiak yeah. book that came out, that was coming out for a while, that book is all about animals talking. And they're anthropomorphized a little bit, but on the whole, they are still their animal components, and yet they talk, and we, we don't question it. So I think... We have to skip over that idea of how real is this book because the fact that animals, quote-unquote, woke up is a, is a suspension of disbelief we have to hold on to in order to make the logical journey of this book continue. Even though this book has implied that while being in the grounded in the real world that scientists have somehow devised this? Well, and that's but that this kind of harkens back to the thing that you were talking about before. You're at, like you ask a lot of questions you say, "Okay, okay, Margaret, you or Marguerite, you created a world that has all these implications and I need you to answer all of them. I think the the bigger thing is to recognize is that she can't answer all of them in the first four issues of the book because that would destroy the whole plot. This The story follows this girl, Jessie, and her dog, Sandor, um, as they're trying to make their way across the country because of what happens to some her parents. Trying quote, to find her mark? brother. Trying to find her, her brother, but question mark, something happens to her parents. Like The narrative focus is on these characters, and there's a bigger world out there, which is why I think if you read more of, if you do dive into this, like I've been reading this book consistently, um, these questions do get slowly answered over time. And right. in, the, in the sister series of this, of this book, The Wake... Um, and the rise and there's another one I think there's like three other little side books that aren't like the, that aren't necessary in order to follow the plot of animosity but there are the animosity the rise animosity I think the world animosity the wake or something and those books start to answer those questions that's all I'm saying yeah it's not a bad thing the fact that this book is generating all of these questions and compelling the reader to to ask how all these things are going to be addressed you know that's that's not a bad thing that's actually a good thing it's just Mm -hmm. you know sometimes a little bit frustrating for the reader uh because you're waiting to see whether or not it's it's actually a plot hole or not you know what i mean so 
when when I was reading this, I like okay, so animals are sentient now, and this was a jarring uh, introduction because like the we're pretty much brought into the story right as that happens and almost immediately we're confronted with this overwhelming violence of the animals essentially rising up against humans and killing just there's just so much seeming like indiscriminate killing happening and it and as we get a little further into the story you see that there's a little more nuance not all of the animals are like that not all of the humans are like that and um, it, I, I just feel like there was just so much violence that that was what was off-putting to me. Totally. Because I felt like there were more, like there were, there were like one of the, um, moments of, of Sandor explaining like his love for this girl, like she's not his master but he's gonna like protect her and i just felt like there there's just so many people who have very positive relationships with their pets and the animals that they live around that i can't like it was hard for me to wrap my head around like all of the animals would want all of the humans to die you know yeah Yeah. the uh, the level of escalation seemed kind of extreme and there were like a lot of animals that i felt like you guys I would imagine would be largely just probably pretty apathetic to humans. And they're like, we need to fucking kill the humans. And I'm like, really? Like seagulls? Like (laughs) you guys realize like, are you going to make your own French fries? Like, you know, how's that going to play out? Like how great was that finding Nemo reference where the seagull about to attack someone just screams mine. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that there's, that's, that's kind of one of the unanswered questions and one of the things that does get revealed later. As someone who's read beyond this, I don't want to spoil the future of the book. I don't mm-hmm. know if you two are going to continue to read. I, if you are at least, if your interest is at least peaked, I would say you should. But the question of like how the hierarchy works, how intelligence works hasn't been completely answered, but there are some hints at it as to where the like level of intelligence based on various animals comes from. Oh because, yeah. Because there is a question of, you know, mice on the whole like aren't necessarily smart animals but they they are intelligent um Mm -hmm. and then give them the ability to be conscious of that intelligence like what happens then um there is a question of you know how do insects play into this how do um you know large beasts versus small beasts like how could a wolf command an entire army you know like for instance in this first one how do you strap these giant missiles to the backs of turtles how smart are these turtles um how smart is it koala and these bison can they actually read it's a big one i want to know so i had um another thing that made me feel uncomfortable but i didn't realize why until just like a few minutes ago while we were starting to talk about this but there are a few instances in this book where you see humans using quotes from the bible to argue that they have dominion over animals and that this is upsetting the natural order of things mm-hmm. and that may the the one-sidedness of that and the the insistent one-sidedness of that I think made me uncomfortable because there's like the dude in the park who does that. And then I think like the suicide bomber in a crowd like references that also. Yep. But I feel like if this were to actually happen and animals gain sentience, there would be a lot of religious people who would say this being clearly has a soul 
and we need to protect that. So it it felt aggressive to me that the two the multifacetedness of the interaction of religious people who feel very strongly about their religion and their interaction with animals suddenly getting sentience. It felt very like toxic in one note, and it could have been a very interesting, uh, not like a focus, but just Mm -hmm. like panel one offs showing the complexity of people reacting to a weird situation like this yeah yeah and that's kind of something i touched on in in my notes uh before the show is uh uh, this is actually something we talked about a lot in my religious studies and environmental sustainability class in college and how a lot of people interpret the bible to say that um man is supposed to be a steward not really uh, in a position of dominion but more in a position of being a steward of the earth and so it's more about protecting everything and and taking care of everything you know you're mm-hmm. you're more i guess you know the person in charge of upkeep than someone who has a you know carte blanche to just destroy everything and do whatever you want um which I think, of course, is a more nuanced opinion. And, and you're right. Having more nuanced takes, uh, obviously, the book doesn't need to go off in that whole, you know, um, <laughs> philosophical, theological discussion. But I, I think that there's definitely, like, there could be a lot of fascinating implications in this book about, like, what this does for uh, theology and religion, for, to be sure. And obviously, there would be more opinions and voices to be added to that conversation. Right, yeah. right. I just, I just feel like because, like, in the the introduction page to the book, there was a Genesis quote, and then two separate char- like my, like side characters mentioned the Bible in some capacity, and I felt like, okay, you're clearly trying to bring this element in, but if you're going to bring that element in, like do something the interesting with it yeah, yeah. like it, it felt like well, you're trying to make a point here but i feel like you're not seeing the possibilities of a fuller argument oh yeah right. i mean and there's so much you can do with that that's the thing about this book that i to take like a counterpoint to this i mean that's something that i i i saw at first and as you Again, as you read on in the series, I think Marguerite Bennett is trying her best to represent as many perspectives as she can. And while at first we see the more aggressive side of things, you know, as the book goes on and you start to experience things as Jesse and Sandor, um, spoilers, do travel across the country. I mean, I'll say as much of that. Um, You know, as they do travel across the country, you do start to see different perspectives. Um, I believe there is a they do touch on religion again um, and they do touch on like how humans and animals do end up coexisting in better, less militant ways. I don't know why New York City is so violent and militant. Maybe it's just the number of people. And it's kind of that trope of with more people, things are more likely to escalate to become violent. But Hmm. as they travel across the country where they start to see more and more people, you get more diverse perspectives. And I think Bennett in this series is trying to offer isn't necessarily trying to offer one perspective in saying like this is right or this is wrong i think she's trying to say people interpret this this awakening or the wake as in different ways in positive and in negative ways and each have their benefits and drawbacks um and which which to me says that this book is very complex and has a lot of things that it can do which is makes it worth reading to a certain extent right like it's not trying to be super one-sided about all of this, just telling the story about Jesse and Sandor and only seeing the bad things in the world. Um, 
I, and, it, and there's a lot of questions about food that that come up, and even in this volume, food is a is a primary problem. You know, they were talking about how Sandor only eats things that die, and that and you know a lot of the animals are like sick of tofu, which is really interesting. Like, how do you end up dealing with that idea? Like, we hunt for food if you if you ignore the idea of mass production of food, right? Um, and you go back maybe two thousand years, we hunted for food um, with the understanding that like. These are just beasts. They don't necessarily have a consciousness to understand what's happening. They just know that they die, um, if, if, if they even know that. But if you, as soon as you introduce the idea of sentience or consciousness or in sentience, and you say, well, potentially, like to Kara's point, these things may have souls, then it becomes a whole bigger thing. When you kill another person and you kill another thing that can understand what's happening to it, then there's a... There's like a worry. There's a like, should I have done this? Is this even right? Even if it's for my own survival. Um, but then it comes down to survival. I mean, like again, and I think that that is what makes this a good book. Despite all of the questions, I think Bennett is trying to answer as many of them as she can, but she can't do it in, you know, one volume. She can't do it in just, you know, 56 pages or something. So, so shut up is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of complexities to the, this book and there's a lot of things that you can pick at um, is, is mostly what I'm trying to say. Right. I think like overall, I was just very unsettled reading it. Like, like I said, be, like because Absolutely. of a lot of the violence and there were a lot of visuals that were just like pretty graphic. Like, yeah. But not even that, like little things like the, um, the mutinous koala like mm-hmm. looked kind of <laughs> yeah. goofy to me like yeah. there's a little like eye patch situ- or bandana situation going on bandana, yeah. but the there was a a deer or like there was a stag hanging out during that like <laughs> in exchange with grenades dangling from its antlers and i was like what like that really freaked me out because i was, I was like, like how does that work i was like that is a like a suicide bomber deer right there yeah, and oh. that is a horrifying visual because he is built for that. Like he's no other creature could dangle that many grenades from its appendages. Yeah. Like this, ah, and that was like that was creepy for me, especially when he was like one of the creatures that ends up escaping towards mm-hmm. the end with our other characters. I was like, why are you bringing live grenades along with you? There was a child with you. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of really interesting things that happen beyond this this volume. I know I keep talking about beyond the volume. I, I really shouldn't because I think what happens in this book is a is a sampling of the initial violence you can see in a massive change, right? Like when there's that this big of a population trying to institute any kind of change is huge and you're going to get a lot of di- people that disagree and a lot of people with a lot of strong opposing opinions. And I think that that is highlighted while very graphically, I think that's highlighted really well where people start to sanction off different areas, owning territories. Even in the city of New York, there's this open market thing that just kind of harkens back to the idea of New York in general. Um, but even then, it's it's still like with this cloud of violence over it of like at any moment, these animals could rise up and try to kill all the humans, even though they even though humans have guns. And we start to see the beginning of that, which is what Sandor wants to get away from. Right. And I, you know, I, I see your point about you know, the series continues and it goes more into these things and provides more nuance. But I'm looking at this like, okay, this is the first, what, four issues of this book. And I, if I had been like getting these issues monthly, I probably wouldn't have continued after the first couple months because it's just not, it's like this book is not for me. 
Totally. And I, I don't think I would have wanted to put in that investment of maybe these questions will get answered. I think after the initial issue or two, I would have been like, not for me. Thank you, Marguerite Bennett. I like a lot of your work, but this one is not mine. Gotcha. So overall then, for this book, I mean, we so we read the first four volumes of Animosity, and then we got to see this issue, The Rise. Just like, oh, it's a one-shot in the book, but it is a, a mini-series that continues on beyond the the normal animosity series how did you how did you guys feel about this alternate perspective on what happened i believe it was in chicago um how did you guys feel about that um wasn't that following the actual veterinarian from from the very beginning of animosity oh what was it in new oh no they were talking about chicago my apologies they were in san francisco yeah yeah sorry yeah it's it's the vet from from san fran which would be her brother right no spoilers i I don't think he's related at all she's got she's got two brothers right and one of them's dead and the other one is the one she's trying to find okay i I read it as the vet dude was her brother really yeah i mean i could be wrong but i've well partially also because i didn't realize that the rise thing was a one shot as a separate like mini series. I thought it was still like part of that same line. So I was like, oh, well then this must be the brother because he's in California and he's like kind of a good dude. And mm-hmm. I assumed that she would be like going to this brother because they assumed that life will be better with him. So he must be a good dude, even if he hasn't yeah. like spoken to his family in a long time. Right. That's probably, yeah, you've probably got it right. I didn't connect those dots. I mean, um, nonetheless, though, like that story follows a completely different narrative about in a way more organized fashion where it looks like somewhere on the west coast the animals managed to like turn things into a system to a certain extent where if you did something and an animal could vouch for you then you were okay as a human which i thought was an interesting concept yeah i liked that but i thought i was like if i'm being totally honest kind of rolling my eyes at the um that, that winter mute the yeah fucking well, wolf. well yeah that like half wolf like explaining that like we had the most seamless violence free transition of any of the cities and like going on and on about how they were going to structure things and how things were going to be organized and i was like i realize people have a hard-on for san francisco as this progressive utopia but mm-hmm. it's actually a more complicated situation like that and can we please stop holding it up as the shining example on the hill because it's not so. Right. I mean, I, so Kara wants a more com- complex geopolitical representation of this city. Um, Marguerite Bennett, if you can fit that in as well, <laughs> on no, top of like, all of really, my unreasonable like, claims, it. which, mind you, those need to come first, then get around to Kara's, please. Oh my God. No, it's just like, I feel like a lot of people see San Francisco and they're just like, it's so progressive. There's these amazing politics. And I'm like, people literally can't afford to live there. And there are blocks that are just full of homeless people. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this like utopian, like animal, like, like not like paradise, but like, we did a great job here. I'm like, cool. What are you going to do about the homeless problem? And like, that's just something that I wouldn't have thought of, except now I live like an hour away from it. And I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah like i realize I, that not every creator is gonna have a nuanced perspective on everything that's happening but i'm like think this through do your research <laughs> yeah i i took that as uh, this dictator trying to explain to someone look at how peaceful our takeover was look at how simple this was for us when under the surface what's actually going to be happening in my opinion is that it's much more violent and it's much worse um 
and I, I know the rest of how this story plays out. Uh, they they only explain some of that partially, and I, I don't want to spoil anything. But yeah, I took that as Wintermute, which I can't even believe Wintermute as a, as a name is beautiful because I just read Neuromancer, and I know what that's all about. Wink what? to the stupid fucking William Gibson book, but um, I I think that it was a it was a it's all a guys. It's all saying look at how easy this is. Everyone did this thing. Look at this structure that we have. Like basically grandstanding to say like look everything's perfect over here this is how it should be but the animals are running things because if you if you look at the the pictures that they use alongside of that it's like no 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 the animals are completely in control and humans have no choice in the matter and even to this extent this this character the vet you know he has no control because he's in a quote-unquote special situation my guess everyone's in a special situation no one is actually vouched for and it's that thing that's like well no one's going to talk about it because you can't actually go talk to these people but we're going to say every, you're in a special situation everyone else is free and they're doing fine you just have to prove yourself but everybody else is also doing the same thing because they want complete control over the humans like it's a it's a total dictatorship that's that's how i read it at least that's terrifying. I'm not going to exactly. Tonight. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're, wait, you're telling me that the bat hanging in that guy's bedroom, you're okay with, but not no. the <sighs> the dictatorship takeover. <laughs> no, that was weird too. I, yeah, well, exactly. They, that yeah. was part of my like unsettled feeling from reading this. So like currently, I'm I'm crashing at a friend's house, and he has two cats. And so I read this book, and then I like saw one of their eyes glowing in the darkness, and I was like, "Don't you come for my throat." <laughs> I've been nothing but nice to you. <laughs> You're going to just hear whispers. Are you scared of me? And the cat's just meow, you know, licking its butt. <laughs> <laughs> Look, what did you think of this? The rise? I mean, uh, would, would I read volume two? Um, maybe if it's on sale, I think we haven't really talked about uh, De La Torre's art, which honestly, Oh yeah. For someone that I've never heard of before, for someone who I think this was his quote, first quote unquote, and I guess this word is kind of loaded, but like professional work, because mm-hmm. I think up to this point he was only doing Brazilian comics only, whatever. Professional um, American work then. Yeah, professional, yeah. big, uh, major American market. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I was, I was pretty impressed. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I thought it was a style that was pretty able and capable to really tread the line between graphic violence and serious uh, dangerous uh, perils and drama alongside you know a koala that looks like he's part of like some revolutionary you know a militia or something mm-hmm. like that which I guess in a way he sort of is um, so I, I felt like he treaded the line pretty well I thought the art was was not bad, honestly. Um, and this is on thought, animosity one through four, just to just to clarify. Right, for w- Wando's art for the uh, for the one shot. I've I've seen his work before. He's done some work for Valiant. In a lot of ways, he reminds me a lot of Francavilla, but and I hate to say this, that but like Francavilla, but not as good. So well, it re- it was like a more cartoony style, kind of, which was like almost reminiscent of the 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 character shapes. Of, yeah, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Powerpuff Girls, like the, the, the veterinarian, looked a lot like. <laughs> no, no, the he did. He looked like the yeah, 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 dude, totally, totally. He did look like yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Totally. Um, no, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the artwork. I thought that was pretty good. Would I read volume two? Maybe if it's on sale, but it is a pretty tough book to read. I mean, all in all. Uh, humans run the wide gamut of of good to trash and i guess we're seeing the animals are 
largely no different. Mm-hmm. Maybe at some point we'll find out they're all trash too. So I don't know. Um, well, so Mike, you've been letting Nick and I just dump all over this book, but you cl- like sure. you clearly enjoy it because you've kept reading it. So what is it about this story that you find continuously engaging? So the thing that really keeps me coming back to this book, and I, I always put off reading the issues, it's one of those things where I get I get the book every every month, and it um it sits in my my list of or my stack of books saying like like and I always put it off because I'm like I don't know because the book makes me uncomfortable, but it makes me uncomfortable in ways that are like I don't know if I agree with this, but I think that it's a good story. I like the fact that the book definitely challenges me on a lot of the things that I think. I think there's a lot of like hokey stuff that happens in the book, but it does still beg the question, well, what if this did happen? What if what if things happen like this? Where do, you know, communities lie? Like for some reason there's this goat character that becomes very like a prolific in the story and he really doesn't like humans. He really doesn't like other animals. He only wants to hang out with goats. And he's kind of so it's like kind of pushing this idea of racism with the, among these animals. And we see a little bit of that in the book uh, in the first volume. But I, I really like the way that Bennett is trying to challenge a lot of different like perspectives. And she does a very good job of consistently writing characters of different perspectives and how they have to deal with each other and maybe sometimes they don't deal with each other and they fight and they beat each other up or someone gets killed or you know there are humans that are trying to do good but it turns out that their good is actually at the sacrifice of some animal um and it it talks a lot about topics that i don't necessarily like to think about but i still want to read this book because it does challenge me to think about these things because they make me uncomfortable and they make me kind of just at least recognize them, not necessarily make a decision, but recognize them. And, you know, the story does follow Jesse and Sandor. And I think that there is a compelling like story of love of two characters. You know, in the first volume, we see that, um, the, that Sandor binds with her or what's it called? Imprints on her. I don't know. I thought only Raptors did that. I, (laughs) (laughs) um, God, but like, nonetheless, you know, Sandor has this on this blinded, like dedication to her. Um, and I, I really enjoy the the, the 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 levels he will sacrifice himself for her, and in vice like vice versa. Like she's just this innocent girl, but as you as the story goes on, you start to see her develop more than than just being this little girl who kind of just wants to live. And I don't know what to do, Sandor. And it's like, don't worry, girl, I'll take care of it. Um, and she she starts to make decisions for herself. We do meet more characters, and it's like. As the story goes on, every time I feel like I want to drop off, Bennett introduces something to the book that I go, whoa, I guess I need to check out the next issue. And it stays on my pull list. Um, and I, this first volume, I, I said, like, my simple notes were, holy smokes, I can't believe how fast-paced the first arc of this book is. I read through the first four issues very quickly. And, not, and it's not just because I'd already read it, but it is so, like, the first issue by itself is a page turner. Like, I was slamming the keys on my computer, <laughs> getting, like, making the page turn because I wanted to keep reading it so much. And I, I think Bennett is trying to, I think she was trying to establish, like, a lot of forward thinking things with this. Characters that, you know, rep- that represent themselves in, like, a non binary fashion. Characters that don't know who they are, but they're still deciding, and everyone's kind of accepting of that. I think that's really cool, and you don't see a lot of that in, like, other mainstream books. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, I, I, the art is really good. I think De, De La Torre's art 
stays consistent. He really loves to draw animals, and he draws them pretty well for the most part. Um, yeah, honestly, can you imagine that? Like, like getting the you know request or whatever for this this book and being like, must be able to draw pretty much every fucking animal. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I mean, maybe that's what you know he did before. I didn't. I'm not familiar with his work before this. I think Nick said he did a lot of work in Brazil. I haven't read a lot of Brazilian comics. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I think like especially when we start to see who the main cast ends up being. Like by the end of this first volume, we see who like what it starts as, and as the main cast like kind of settles, um, you see him drawing a lot of the same animals over and over, but they all have very distinct faces. And even when they're talking to groups of animals, they all seem to have their own personalities. And I, I really respect that like from the artistic perspective, but yeah, I keep coming back to this book because it's challenging and it's, I think it's a well-crafted book on the whole, whether or not I necessarily like it all the time. I don't actively dislike it by any means. Uh, yeah, I, I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kara. No, yeah. I just wanted to say really quickly that I fully enjoyed the fact that the book that I was like animosity that I read for this discussion and uh, the book that I read this week in general, which was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book, are both about like mm-hmm. kind of sentient animals, but take two very wildly different tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just fully appreciated that difference, like animosity, like. The animals are now sentient, but it's all of them and everything is chaos and there's a lot of bloodshed. And then like over at TMNT, they're just like, oh, look, another animal that can talk and looks kind of like a human. What's up? I wonder <laughs> if it likes pizza. It's yeah. just like yeah. it's just like so chill compared to the intensity of animosity. And I'm just totally. like, there are, there are so many different ways to portray talking animals. Look at that. Right. <laughs> well, I guess... Um, we're kind of running out of tape here, so I don't want to. I don't want to keep going on this. But final thoughts on this book. Um, what did you guys? I mean, do you guys think you'll read volume two? I know we've kind of talked about what ifs, um, but was there something in this book that maybe wanted you to read it, or are you dead set on not continuing? Um, I think that for me, I'm just. It, it just made me feel too uncomfortable to the point where I wasn't really enjoying it. Like I, I appreciated the the thought experiment of the what mm-hmm. if of it but not enough to want to continuously subject myself to the uncomfortable feelings associated with it gotcha what about you nick uh for, as as for me like we've talked about in the past how i have some issues with aftershock in terms of their a really crazy shipping schedules and b um just the fact that everything seems to be so expensive all the time but uh, those things aside I, I would consider reading book two if only because I think for me in the end there were things that I enjoyed with this book but I think the verdict the jury is still out on like I, I, I need to see more of it to sort of address some of my issues and concerns with it um, okay. and, and I would maybe be up for doing that I, I think overall what this book does for me is it makes me want to read Sweet Tooth instead yeah. which um <laughs> you know maybe maybe it's because it's like i need this book but i need it to be even more sad right right sweet tooth if you don't know is a is a jeff lemire book that is just it's very gorgeous it's very sad it will break your heart i literally cried my eyes out in the last two panels or pages of that book um it is so deeply sad because like this book reminds me of that in so many different ways from the post-apocalyptic setting to sort of like the 
the human animal hybrids and the moral implications of that which mm-hmm. seems to be at least by the end of animosity volume one there's a i mean very on the nose implication that that's where things are going there so um Perhaps. yeah that being said if you liked this book maybe go check out sweet tooth um yeah. just buy a lot of tissues before and just be ready to be super sad i guess cool. i'll add it to my list yeah i mean oh it's so good it's so very good if Um, you like if you like jeff lemire i should add this it is also drawn by jeff lemire so i know some people maybe don't like his own style but that is a thing going on gotcha well i kept reading and i enjoyed it but i already said that so um i unfortunately we didn't have any quotes from our goodreads we had people commenting but no one said okay to air so a lot of people did read this book i think there were a lot of reviews on goodreads about it so go check out our goodreads thread about this that'll be in the show notes and you can read some other people's reviews as well as some of the comments from the people on the group um or ircb um group but you know thank you guys for doing this episode Uh, if you want to get in touch with us and talk to us about animals and talk to us about other sad comic books or maybe happy comic books because this book was such a a downer in a lot of ways reach out to us on twitter you can talk to kara at kara szam you can talk to nick at death star plans you can talk to me at mike rappin and you can talk to the show at ircb podcast where we retweet stuff and post polls sometimes uh i didn't post a poll because we're recording this on saturday so there will be one on sunday so look forward to that also, go ahead and check out our Goodreads group. We have a, we have weekly threads. This week's thread, uh, we've already gotten some great comments, but we're continuing on the idea of what do you think makes a good comic shop? So if you have thoughts on that, go ahead, head on over to Goodreads and let us know. Also, go ahead and check out our website, ircbpodcast.com. We have a pronunciation guide for creators. And we also have merch, if that's something that you're interested in. And a zine. And a zine. Two zines. Two zines. Rate and subscribe for our podcast, please. That will equal more listeners and higher rankings. And you can email us at ircb at destroythecybe.org. That is destroy the cyborg, but with a dot before the org. Infinity Shred does all the music for our show. They're the best band in the universe. If you listen to their music, you will travel across galaxies through your ear holes. Xander, he's a good friend. He also edits the show. Just, just plain and simple. Great guy. I want to say thank you to Kara and Nick for being on the show. Thank you to you, the listener, for checking out our show and buying our zine and talking to us online. We really appreciate it. We're so excited. Make sure you check out our Patreon. I'm going to plug it one more time. ircbpodcast.com slash Patreon. And until next time, may your beans be cool and your business as well. What? And I do- <laughs> What, Mike? I don't, I don't know. know. Signing off this show is always tough. I don't know what to do. I mean... <laughs> Up. <laughs> you need your own version of Stay Classy San Diego. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>